Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, and business executives about urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we're uh, back to talking about the global energy sector. We want to cover topics from fracking to natural gas, from the transition to renewable energy, to the rise and fall of legendary figures in the American energy industry. And I cannot think of a better person to talk uh, about those topics than Russell Gold, who is an award-winning investigative journalist at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's been covering energy for the journal since 2002. Uh, in 2010, he was part of the Wall Street Journal's team that covered Deepwater Horizon explosion and oil spill. Uh, and the journal's work was awarded the Gerald Loeb Award for Best Business Story of the Year. And he is a uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in national reporting. Uh, in 2020, he will inaugurate a new beat at the journal, which is climate change and business. And outside his work at the Wall Street Journal, he has also written two books. His first book, The Boom, was longlisted for the FT Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Prize in 2014. And his second book, uh, Superpower, uh, was published in June 2019. Both are really fascinating. We'll talk about them. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me remotely all the way from Texas, Russell. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and also co-hosting the show is is my longtime partner, Owen Engel. He is a junior in Princeton, soon to be senior. He leads our co uh, energy coverage at Policy Punchline. So thanks so much for joining me, Owen. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the conversation today. Uh, so why don't we just jump right in, Russell? Maybe we thought we could start with your two books and get our listeners a little bit more familiar with your ideas and, and some of those big topics such as fracking and natural gas. Uh, would you mind just giving us a quick summary about the boom and, and why don't we just take it off from there? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I started uh, on the energy beat at the Wall Street Journal way back in 2002, you know, I was sort of the low man on the totem pole and they assigned me to cover companies that people didn't really have that much interest in. You know, these these were companies, they, they weren't out there in the Gulf of Mexico. They weren't drilling off West Africa. They, they were doing things like drilling in North Texas, you know, this this was pea shooter stuff. Nobody really cared that much about them. And it just so happened that these were the companies that were developing and pioneering this new method of, of getting, uh, at first, natural gas out of these really super dense rocks. Uh, at the time, they, it wasn't even really called fracking. It was called unconventional shale or unconventional uh, gas. And then they started calling it hydraulic fracturing. But what it turned out was is that this was a, a new technique um, that allowed companies to get gas out of rocks that previously, you know, if you drilled into it, you just gave up because it was, they were just super dense. You couldn't get anything out of them. Um, and your well was a failure. And all of a sudden through some trial and error, through some experimentation, uh, companies started making a, at first decent wells and then decent wells became good wells. And before before you knew it, you know, the United States, which everyone had written off as being, you know, just a, an energy buyer, uh, not really a producer, uh, slowly going down to 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 relatively small amounts of oil and gas production, uh, reversed that trend and started producing more and more and more natural gas. And then a few years later, the same techniques were applied and they started getting oil out of it. And by last year, the United States was the world's top oil producer, uh, atop uh, Saudi Arabia and and Russia. It was uh, it's, it was it's been a remarkable, not even twenty years, um, transformation. And so, I in the boom, I wrote about that. And what I tried to do was was find the the people and the stories that really highlighted 
how that transformation came about. Um, but then I also wrote, it was, it's also a personal story. Uh, it's a story about some land that my family owns, my, my parents own in, in North Central Pennsylvania. They don't live on it, but they've owned it. It's been important to them for years. Uh, and it turned out it was right in the middle of one of the more sought after areas to, to frack for natural gas. And so it became a question of, can you do this in a way that doesn't destroy the environment? Is there a way to take proper precautions? You know, how can we develop? We use so much oil and natural gas in the United States. Can we produce it all in a way that, you know, when we look back, we can we can say to ourselves, OK, you know, we did this, you know, in, in an environmentally sustainable, reasonable manner. And it raised all sorts of questions about what that means and what type of energy we should use in the United States. And that, that was really what I wrote about in the boom. Uh, why don't we just go a little bit deeper on the concept of fracking? As you mentioned, it was uh, first kind of invented in uh, 1947. It was called hydraulic uh, fracturing. And then uh, it, it has not really only become a major source of energy today, but it's also changed the way that we use energy, the energy we use. And uh, on, on the description on your website, it also says it's both a threat and godsend for the environment and is leading uh, the revival of manufacturing in the United States, just as right. you said. So uh, I suppose recently a lot of environmentalists are kind of uh, branding or, or painting uh, fracturing, fracking as this uh, harmful, super harmful concept to, to uh, climate change. So, so would you mind just telling us a little bit more about the tech and, and your thoughts sure. on it? Absolutely, because it's a very it's a much more complicated story than than people really get at. So what fracking is, you have to start with the well. You drill a well to, to, to get oil and gas out of the ground. You drill a well, basically a you know one foot diameter, maybe a little bit larger than that, uh, 18 inches hole through the ground. And you drill it straight down, um, depending on how deep you want to go. Sometimes you go a mile deep. And you hit this target area. You drill down to this target area. And what you're looking for is this deposit of shale. And what shale is, is this very old rock. And that, which is really where oil and gas is created. It's, it's the kitchen where through heat and pressure, uh, organic material, the leftovers of, of billions and trillions of microorganisms deposited at the bottom of ancient oceans, cook over time into hydrocarbons. And those hydrocarbons are stuck inside the shale. They don't sort of ooze out very much. And so you need to go in there. But if you drill the well into that shale and then open it up, nothing happens. You know, this is not the gusher of Hollywood where oil will come flying up and, you know, Jimmy Stewart dances around or, you know, uh, uh, from, uh, James Dean in, in Giant. Literally nothing will happen. So what you need to do is apply extraordinary pressure onto the rock. Um, and, you know, you're talking, uh, I mean, the last time I was on a frack job, which was a while ago now, several years ago in North Dakota, several very large uh, truck-based pumps, all pumping pressure onto the same rock. Uh, more than we ever really find. The way I describe it is that it's sort of equivalent of sitting on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico and all of the, the pressure of the, 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 the water above you. I mean, that's the kind of pressure you're putting on the rock. So you pump in and you pump in and you pump in. And at a certain point, the rock fractures. And that's what fracking is. It's the fracturing of the rock. And it creates this network of cracks that um, tra just travel for a, a relatively large distance through the rock. And once you've fractured it, you sort of continue fracturing it, you build this network and then you 
take out the liquid that's used. Because usually the, when I say pumping, I should have said you're pumping in water, chemicals, uh, sort of a surfactant, which is like um, dishwashing liquid, something to, to lower the friction to be able, and then you pump that all out. And then at that point, the gas and the oil starts to flow because you've created this, this sort of this network of, of fractures to allow the oil to, to, to leak out uh, and then up into your well. So that's really, you know, at its most basic, that is what fracturing is. And it can get much more complicated. You know, wells these days, you, the, the well bore will go straight down for 7,000 feet and then turn and run through the rock for a mile. And you, you will create not just one fracture, but you'll do a dozen or up to 30 different fractures along this well, then pull all the water out, and then you'll get this, this gush of, of gas coming out. Um, so in, in some ways, it's really not the most technologically complicated thing you're doing. You're putting pressure on rock until it breaks, and then you're taking the water out and seeing what comes out. Um, you know, so it, in, in a way, you mentioned it goes back to 1947, and that's true, but, but in a way, it goes all the way back to, you know, the 1880s or 1890s. No, actually, I'm sorry, even before the 1870s, when one of the earliest things people used to do is put sticks of dynamite down wells with the same concept, set off the dynamite, force the explosion, you know, put a little water on top to sort of the force the explosion into the rock, you create fractures and lo and behold, the wells were better, more oil came out. So it's the, it's, it's an old concept that's been refined and, and, and done on just a massive level. Um, the amount of pressure that's used these days is, is uh, hundreds of times greater than anything that was done even 20 years ago. Uh, and so, you know, this was a way, it's really a tool. Fracking is really a tool. Um, now, here's where the environmental question comes in. And it's a really important question because you're not just drilling one well. You might drill one well per acre, but because the fracture doesn't travel that far, you have to drill another well and do another hydraulic frack or frack of the well, uh, you know, the next acre over. So in areas like south of Pittsburgh, uh, north central Pennsylvania, North Dakota, and now in the Permian Basin in, in West Texas, if you fly over them or you travel through them, there are wells everywhere, uh, well after well after well, mile after mile. And that type of it, industrialization of an area presents very large environmental challenges because if nobody's paying attention, um, you can have operators that are doing things like um, storing the chemicals that are needed uh, to fracture the well in a poorly lined pond. And those chemicals will seep into the groundwater. And this is groundwater people use and people start drinking them. That has happened. You know, has it happened everywhere? Is there an environmental catastrophe unfolding across the country? No, of course not. But there are some very specific environmental um, issues that have taken place. The other thing to think about is that when you're drilling the well, you need to case it. You need to put a, a pipe through it and run cement around it. And that's to protect the groundwater, which you're drilling through uh, from being exposed to the chemicals, the, the produced water, uh, which is when you bring the water back up, it's laced with all sorts of, it's just all sorts of contaminants that are coming from, from deep in the shale. You need to protect all of that. Uh, so there is, there, there is an absolute need to be sensitive and to do things right and to not cut corners. Now, 
here is the positive environmental story, which is not often told. There, there's clearly a negative environmental story. The positive environmental story about fracking is that uh, it is very clear that over the last 10 years, as the amount of carbon dioxide, the amount of greenhouse gases uh, produced in the United States have gone down, that there are two reasons for that. One is that we're using a lot more natural gas to produce electricity and a lot less coal. And the reason we're using more natural gas is that we're producing more natural gas. We're fracking for natural gas. The other reason that our carbon dioxide output has gone down is that we're using a lot more renewables, wind and solar. And it's very important to remember that when you're adding large amounts of wind and solar onto the grid, you need something to back them up. When the wind starts dying down, you need something that can ramp up quickly. And that has been natural gas. So the, the fact that in 2005, we were prepared to become major global importers of natural gas. And we turned that around and we now produce so much natural gas that it's frankly, incredibly cheap, has enabled us to re-envision and rebuild the electricity system in a way uh, which is essentially turning, you know, shutting coal out. Uh, and, you know, if you look at a place like uh, the United Kingdom, they have not used coal in 100 days on their electricity grid. It's sort of a stunning story. All of that has been a secondary result of fracking. On the environmental piece, I thought one of the most interesting stories that you were telling was the Carl Pope story with Aubrey McClendon, thinking about that relationship and thinking about the Sierra Club. Would you mind relaying that to our listeners real quick? Because that is a fascinating tale. Sure. Um, so Carl Pope uh, was the longtime head of the Sierra Club in the United States, one of the uh, top leading environmentalists um, of the early 20th century here. And uh, Aubrey McClendon, it was uh, a... Oklahoma City, born and bred um, uh, businessman who went into and, and, and co-founded this company called Chesapeake Energy, which was one of the most important companies in the, in the growth and development of fracking. Uh, Aubrey McClendon was not a geologist. He was not uh, a petroleum engineer. Uh, he could not have figured out how to produce or, or how to drill a well or frack it if his life depended on it. But what he was very good at was raising lots of money from Wall Street, selling them on an important story and building an organization. And he turned Chesapeake from uh, a totally forgettable small cap company into this giant producer of, of natural gas and he pretty much turned the entire U.S. domestic oil industry um, and got them started drilling for natural gas. And so Arvin McClendon, much earlier than everyone else, um, realized that there was that to the extent to which he could beat up on coal, he could promote his own fuel, his natural gas, and he would get more money for it and he would raise demand and, and et cetera, et cetera. So he starts funding very quietly using some black money techniques, hard to trace, but he starts funding this campaign in Texas, attacking a proposal to build, I forget how many, about a half dozen new coal plants. Um, and there were protests and there were advertisements where you had these, these, 
these beautiful actors and models with, you know, coal dust all over their face. And I forget what the tag was, but it was something like coal is dirty. Um, and he really raised this issue. And so he eventually uh, got together with Carl Pope and there was a marriage of convenience uh, is really the only way to put it. Uh, these were two men who agreed on one issue, which was they wanted they both wanted to get rid of coal for very different reasons. Uh, one from an environmental reason, the other because it opened up uh, it opened up more markets for for his fossil fuel, which was a cleaner fossil fuel, natural gas. And they they formed an alliance. And Aubrey McClendon donated money uh, through some of these uh, sort of cover groups to the Sierra Club. And Carl Pope uh, kept it quiet uh, from the public and even quiet from his own board of directors. And when it came out exactly where the source of some of this funding was, um, that pretty much ended Carl Pope's career at the Sierra Club. Uh, you know, but he, the, the, uh, the interesting thing to me is that when I interviewed Carl Pope, he he wasn't really, he didn't really regret what he did. You know, this was a very much, uh, I want to say Machiavellian is, is a little too strong a word, but, but there was a real politique going on here and that, uh, you know, the, the environmentalist realized he needed money to accomplish his goals. Uh, and you know, if you sort of, from the distance of 2020, and you look back at stuff like the, the massive amounts of money that Bloomberg has pumped into the Sierra Club for the Beyond Coal campaign, which has been extraordinarily successful, all of that really begins with this, this very, um, this marriage of convenience between Carl Pope and Aubrey McClendon. And the, the environmentalists saying, look, we want to make some changes and we need some money and we're not going to get too fussy about where the money comes from to fund this. We're just going to take it. And if it comes from fossil fuels, it comes from fossil fuels. So that's a fascinating story. And one of the other chapters and, and storylines that I really enjoyed reading about also was the individual farms, the individual families that are making these decisions to allow fracking on their property. So obviously you had that experience within your own family trying to figure out what you guys were going to do with your land. And you interviewed, I believe, hundreds of people talking with them about their decision-making process, potentially giving up thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. But in exchange, like obviously we've discussed some of the negative environmental impacts that are that are plaguing these communities. So what were some of those cost-benefit analysis like? Like, what was that conversation like in your family? And and what was that conversation like with a lot of those folks that you were interviewed? Well, I would say in my family, it was a much easier conversation. Um, and that's because, you know, and I, I don't want to mislead anyone. This is, this is land my family bought, I believe, right around 1971, 72. It was not farmable land. They got it on the cheap because it was very hilly and it was uh, uh, about 100 acres that no one else really wanted. Um, they do not use this to make money. They use this as a place to go and get away, you know, it's sort of a, a very rustic, very rustic retreat um, from their homes in Philadelphia. And they, you know, they make their living in Philadelphia. We would have been fine um, if we had never taken any money. Um, but we, you know, as a family, we sat down and we tried to figure out like, look, how do we do this? Can we do this in a responsible manner? Because if we don't allow fracking on this land, it's going to go 
It's going to happen somewhere else. It's not like we're going to stop using oil. It's not like we're going to stop using natural gas. So can we try to figure out a way to do this um, responsibly? Uh, and so that was the conversation that happened for us. For a lot of other people, the conversation is very different. I mean, I remember talking to one of their neighbors um, and these were, you know, these are farmers, a lot of dairy, there's some dairy farms still out there. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's still a lot of agricultural activity. These are people who they don't see the land as some pristine natural state. You know, this was, you know, this is mid central Pennsylvania. The, 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 the old growth forest was cut down a century ago. Um, there's been a lot of coal mining over the years. There's been a lot of, you know, this is land that you use to generate value. And so when companies were coming to them and saying, look, we're ready to write a $200,000 check, a $300,000 check, uh, with the possibility, uh, of, of royalties down the road, it's very hard for a lot of uh, farmers to, to look away from that. And a lot of them took the deal. And honestly, a lot of them are very happy to have taken the deal. Some of them, you know, have had bad experiences, uh, but but it's, it's, it's a very mixed bag. The other thing that I really remember very strongly uh, was a, uh, someone who lived uh, in the county um, where, where, where all, you know, I kind of focused on, Schuylkill County. And uh, he had moved out of out there with his child after his wife passed away from cancer. And he wanted he moved out there from Philadelphia, he wanted to get away from Philadelphia, away from all of the, you know, the industry and chemicals. And, and he just wanted a really quiet life. And then all of a sudden fracking came to him and his small hamlet. Uh, there were a couple of man camps set up there where workers were and there were trucks coming down the hill constantly. The the, the peace and quiet he had come for had been destroyed. And, and he said something to me once, which really stuck. And he said, look, I'm being asked to make a sacrifice for the country uh, to, to allow this noise, this industrialization for the good of the country so that we can have energy, so we can produce domestic energy. But nobody ever asked me to make that sacrifice. I never had a choice in this. It was forced upon me. And so there are a lot of people who feel that, that this was forced upon them and that, uh, you know, that, that they were being asked to make sacrifices, but they weren't ever asked. They were being told that, that this was a sacrifice that was going to be made and it was their life. So it's a very complicated story and it's a very difficult story. Uh, and one of the conclusions I ultimately came down to was that if we're going to do something like domestic energy production, we need to do it slowly. We can't be racing forward, which is what happened with fracking at, at top speed. Um, and we need to, you know, there need to be there need to be rules of the road. Uh, there need to be uh, a, a government out there who sort of says, all right, here is the minimums of what we need. This is how you protect the wells. This is how you line the pits. I mean, th this is what you need to do. And if you cannot abide by these uh, rules, then you do not have a license to develop oil and gas. Yeah, it, it's such a complex decision, but, and there's so much money at stake and there's so many, uh, so many potential risks it's really interesting to think through. Um, one other question that I have just about the boom is thinking about your time on the fracking facilities. So yeah. that is also a fascinating piece of the book and the story. So you describe in vivid detail all these scenes of, of these roughnecks doing this work. So my, my question when reading that was with a lot of the demonization of the oil and gas industries, there, there was a little bit of uh, 
cold reception that you describe sometimes when trying to complete your work. I come from a family of journalists. Like, how are you able to convince these workers and and business people that you're able to complete your work as an objective reporter, uh, documenting these these stories and scenes? That's a great question. Um, you, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and if somebody, if if if, if I'm feeling from a company, for instance, that there's resistance, you know, I can say, look, look at my body of work. Look at what I've written about. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not taking sides. You know, don't listen to what I'm telling you right now. Go and look at what I've been doing. Um, and you have to just remain open. Um, one of the s- sacrifices, I suppose, that you make as a journalist is that you have to come to a, a realization that you cannot take sides on the big issues of the day. You cannot become a passionate partisan. You can have, you can be driven to a point of view by the facts, but you cannot allow yourself to become a partisan. And part of what that means is that when I'm talking to somebody and I'm listening to their story, I don't have any compulsion to convince them of my point of view. I don't have a strong feeling like my point of view is right. You need to listen to me. And so I can listen to them and I can hear what they're saying. So the chapter you're referring to in the book, I was on a a frack job in North Dakota. And the reason that the company allowed me to do that is that I had covered this company. I think it was Marathon. I'd covered the company for several years and they were comfortable with me. And they wanted, they figured if we're going to get the word out about what this really, what a frack job is really like, you know, because in the public perception at the time, you know, there was the sense that these bad old oil companies just show up there and pour a whole bunch of chemicals straight down an open well until everyone, you know, until all the plants die. Um, you know, we want to have someone who give us a fair shake. And I kind of position myself as as a uh, an arbiter uh, of fairness. Um, you know, I'm not a, a company shill. If I were a corporate shill, then people wouldn't listen to me. Uh, I'm not a part of an anti-fracking partisan, because if I were also, uh, I wouldn't have as wide an audience. You, you got to play it down the middle sometimes as best you can. Uh, but, but you must have developed some form of some form of a normative judgment or, or your own thoughts on those matters, right? You, you must you must be thinking, for example, I really agree with this, or, or well, I really don't agree with something like that. So, how do you try to make sure that your own more ethical judgments don't really come in the way uh, when you deal with some of the people that you might disagree with? You. There are a couple ways to do that. First of all, you you check yourself. You're constantly vigilant about whether you are becoming too passionate about a subject, so it clouds your judgment. Um, if you do have a judgment that that you feel is is forming your uh, is forming what stories you chase and what perspectives you you go after, you spend a lot of time talking to different people who you feel are reasonable and running it by them and saying, hey, you know, you spend a lot of time doing this. This is what I'm thinking. Does that sound reasonable to you? What, what, what do you think? And you listen to them. So you, you I guess that's not 100% trusting your judgment. Uh, you run it by other people and sort of see what they say. And if their response is, oh, I don't know, that sounds a little, uh, sounds a little like, you know, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, then you take a minute, you stop and you reassess. Uh, so why don't we take a pivot to your most recent book, Superpower? Uh, the, the book is more about renewable energies and focuses on this company called Clean Energy Partners in this 
figure, Michael Skelly, who attempted to basically build those massive amounts of solar and wind energy in places like the Midwest and in Oklahoma and bring those to locations where clean energy was less cost competitive, like the Southeast. So uh, the, the covers super important topics ranging from growing competitiveness of, of the renewable energy industry to regulatory difficulties. And, and uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about uh, that book and yeah. that writing process? Sure. So, um, you know, a couple of years after I wrote the boom and I was continuing to report in, on energy for the Wall Street Journal, yeah, I was thinking to myself, what's, you know, I covered fracking, which to me was this massively important story in energy. What's the other big important story that I want to, you know, what, what else is there out there? And uh, I kept coming back to this line I had written at the end of the boom, which said, look, I'm not afraid of fracking. I'm afraid of carbon. Um, and there was this issue of greenhouse gases and climate change, carbon accumulation in the atmosphere. And so I was looking to tell a story. And so I started, and I should say, so I started reading some of the books about climate change. And, you know, this might sound a little redundant, but I found them horribly depressing. Um, you know, a lot of respect for these books and, and the, the authors, but it was just everything was going to come to an end, doom and gloom. And I thought to myself, wait a second, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for solutions, who are trying to figure out we're facing this massive problem. How do we get around it? How do we adjust to it? How do we make improvements so that instead of a uh, three degree temperature rise, we limit it to a two degree temperature rise or maybe a one and a half degree temperature rise. And so I decided I wanted to write about an entrepreneur, somebody who was trying to make a difference. Um, and, uh, you know, here, let me grab the 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 the, the lead quote in, in, in superpower was sort of my my lodestone on this. Um, while everyone talked about the weather, no one seemed to do anything about it. Well, I wanted to write a book about somebody who was trying to do something about it. And I ended up finding and uh, spending a lot of time with this interesting guy out of Houston named Michael Skelly, who had in the uh, early, early to mid 2000s built this one of the, the early large wind farms, developer of wind farms. And then right about 2010, he had this big idea. He had sold off the company, trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he had this big idea and realized that if we're going to, as a country, really develop our wind and solar resources, we need to build a new grid to move them around. Because the current electricity we grid, grid we have right now in the United States is regional. It was developed for, you know, to, to, to feed into the local town and the local city. It wasn't developed to move large amounts of electrons around. And it's sort of like, think about the, the road system. We have this giant interstate highway that allows you to get uh, on the, you know, I can go out my door and within about five minutes, I'll get on the interstate here in Austin, Texas. And if I had enough, uh, you know, <laughs> if I had enough caffeine in me, I could drive straight to where you guys are in Princeton, New Jersey without stopping. There is a way to do that. But the electrical grid would be like, what if I had to take a series of back roads and two lane country roads all the way up there? It would take me much longer. It, it wouldn't be functional. So Skelly's big idea, and this is an idea that other people have had and is being instituted in places like Germany and China, was to build that super highway uh, of, of, to move electrons around. And once you do that, then 
you can start building wind in places like the Oklahoma Panhandle, uh, where he wanted to, to build the largest wind farm in the Americas. Because the wind there is incredibly strong. There's a very good solar resource. There are not a lot of people. There's not a lot of agriculture. There's room to do it. There's just one problem. Nobody there needs the electricity. You need to get that electricity somewhere. And so he wanted to build the wires to do it. Because if you can do that, if you can build this new grid, uh, then we don't have to be talking about 10 or 20% renewable energy. We can start talking about 60 or 70 or 80% renewable energy in this country. But if we don't, we're not going to get there. So one interesting thing that you mentioned is that there are a lot of those entrepreneurs out there working on different solutions. And there are a whole lot of different people who imagine a clean energy future in a different in a different way. So in your view, how important is this super highway of energy lines? And it's not really a subject that's talked about very often. So how could we get the public to focus on this solution more? Well, I would I would say it's not really talked about very much yet. Um, but, you know, it's starting to creep into the conversation. Uh, yesterday, or maybe two days ago, uh, anyway, whenever you're listening to this, fairly recently, in late, in late May, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo started talking about it, talking about the importance of building transmission to move hydropower from Canada down into, into New York. Um, in Germany, they're developing this great offshore North Sea wind resource. Their load center, the, the industrial base of Germany where they need the power and where most of the people live is in the south of Germany. So they're building that connection. Um, there's talk about building, this might be this might be a little too ambitious, but there's talk about building in Western Australia, massive solar farms, in the Sahara, massive solar farms, and then moving that those electrons um, either up into Southeast Asia or into Europe. The conversations going on, and one of the things I wanted to 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 write about in my book was that it's not techno. This is not technologically challenging. We have all of the technology we need to do this. This is about uh, whether we want, whether we can envision this future, whether we want to chase this future. One of the lessons that I took in reporting and writing this book that I really want to give to other people is that. This is a future which is totally within reach. Um, will it solve climate change? No. But 80% of the United States running on uh, renewables, then you add nuclear into there and you add hydro and all of a sudden you're talking maybe you know 90% or higher. It, we can get there. We just have to build um, this new infrastructure. And you know that right now, is absolutely the right time to be having this conversation. We're facing historic levels of unemployment. We're facing historic levels of people needing jobs, wanting jobs. Um, and building this new energy resource, whether it's building wind farms, whether it's deploying solar, whether it's manufacturing solar here in the United States, and building the transmission lines to move it all to, uh, around, it is a massive works job. I mean, this is on the level of the Works Projects Administration. Uh, and this is a little bit of what the Green New Deal is starting to capture, excuse me, is starting to talk about. And I think it's it's absolutely worthy of having this conversation because the the fascinating part to me is that not just would you be creating lots of jobs, but at the end of the day, you'd be producing electricity 
that not just has a significantly lower carbon footprint, but it's less expensive. It would enable an economic growth because this input is less expensive. Yesterday, just yesterday, I was talking to a pipeline company out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which this morning announced that it was going to be building um, solar on their own property right next to their natural gas processing plants. Uh, so in other words, when you produce natural gas, there, there are some liquids that come in it, butanes, propanes, you run it through a natural gas processing plant, strip those out. So you've gotten just nice, uh, pure natural gas and put in the pipelines. Well, they were going to put solar right next to their gas processing plants. And I asked them, I said, well, okay, why are you doing that? And they said, because it's cheaper. It's less expensive than buying the power from the utility. It's economic. This is the story I want to tell. If we build the infrastructure, if we envision a world, we can do it. And maybe you want to do it because you want to be green. Maybe you want to do it because you're worried about carbon and climate change. Great. Okay. Maybe you want to do it because you want to create jobs. Okay. Well, that's there too. Maybe you want to do it because it's a long-term economic stimulus, having inexpensive electricity, which is at the heart of so much of our economic activity. Well, that's there too. Um, there are many, many reasons to be pursuing this project right now. So one interesting thing that you talked about in the book and that also played a huge role in the eventual failure of uh, the Skelly project. Oh, oh, and you're giving away the you're giving away the cow here. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, one one interesting thing that I uh, had fun thinking about. I'm from North Carolina, uh -huh. um, which has done some renewable stuff and is considered a leader. Uh, it's kind of a purple-ish state. So Texas has successfully created this renewable industry that's very financially lucrative mm -hmm. and same with uh, places like o Oklahoma. But as you documented in your book, states like Tennessee, states like Arkansas, who have the power uh, to end these transmission lines, these, uh, these lines that are passing through their states have exercised that. So how do we get these states on board and, and what does that look like? Is that a federal top-down solution? In terms of forcing them to do it or or what what did you find in your research well i think one of the first things we need to do is um and this is on me as a reporter uh as a writer it's on entrepreneurs it's on local officials is to take some time to demystify the energy system because let's face it most people they're you know, their connection to the electricity system is when you plug in your iPhone, does it charge? You know, does your AC run when you want it to? And that's fine. That's what most people want. Um, so part of when I say demystifying, what I'm talking about is that you have the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is this government, a federal government uh, um, institution that was created during the Great Depression to provide cheap electricity for the people of the Tennessee Valley, which at the time was one of the most economically depressed parts of the country. Uh, Tennessee, northern Alabama, uh, into Kentucky a little bit, um, basically that area. And so Tennessee Valley has been, Skelly wanted to sell some of his electricity into the Tennessee Valley. His transmission line, the, the one I mean, he had several under development, but the one I really focused on ran from the Oklahoma Panhandle across Oklahoma, crossed Arkansas, 
uh, then would have gone up and above the Mississippi River and come to ground right around Miss, uh, Memphis. And from there, it gets into this, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and it could be spread to North Carolina, up into the Baltimore, Washington area, down into Atlanta, etc. And he was offering to sell electricity. He needed the Tennessee Valley to come to an agreement to agree to buy it at this incredibly cheap price, less than two cents per kilowatt hour. And we don't have to get into that, but it, it, it is an insanely competitive price. Uh, it was about the lowest price of anyone selling any electricity in the United States, with a possible exception of some of these 50 or 60 year old dams up in the Pacific Northwest, which just generate so much cheap electricity. You, you know, you need to figure out something to do with it. And he was trying to get the Tennessee Valley Authority to to buy, to commit to this. And the Tennessee Valley Authority basically was like, you know, we're just not interested. We don't know what to do with it. And, you know, we've got all these coal plants. And, and he said, no, you, you this is this power is so cheap that when it's available, you use this. And when it's not available, you know, you can run your gas plants, your coal plants. And here's my point. The proposal that he gave to them, and this was over many months, but the final proposal he gave to the Tennessee Valley Authority was not even presented to the board of directors of the Tennessee Valley Authority. These are appointed uh, people from several different states. They did not even see the details. If the board of directors was a, unaware of that, then what about the constituents? What about the 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 municipal uh, gas and electric companies, Memphis Power and Light, Matt Power and Water, I think it's called, um, that were buying it? Nobody knew what was being offered. It is not common knowledge these days that renewable electricity is the cheap electricity. It's the cheapest source of electricity that you can add and is becoming more cheap. So we need to pull and demystify some of this and explain that sometimes you have institutions that are for a variety of reasons, some political, they're holding on to uh, their older uh, electricity processing plants. But bringing in new sources of electricity, renewable sources of electricity, will in fact lower the price of electricity because you're bringing you're sort of adding in this this cheap source so look that's a long answer to your question but but the the answer is we need to go people need to realize that what we want from electricity is very simple we want it to be reliable when we turn turn on the the light switch we want it to be there we want it to be affordable we don't really want, I mean, yes, we all, you know, we pay lots of money for electricity, but we don't want it to go up. We want the prices to go down if possible, or at least stay steady. And we want it to be clean. And that should be the guiding principle of electricity in this country, meeting those three things. And there's a way to get there to make our electricity cleaner, less expensive, and as reliable as it's always been. And we need to embrace that because right now, where our electricity comes from, how much it costs, how to bring it all together so it is reliable is something that is 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 kept in like some super secret uh, part of, uh, you know, these RTOs, you know, this, this alphabet soup of TVA and RTOs and this and that. No, we just need to open that up and 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 take frankly, some institutions that are very uh, scoloric 
uh, and to to shine some light as to what's going on and ask some really good questions. There are several different strand of thoughts that were really fascinating that in your responses. Uh, you talked about how you know building those electric grids, it, it's not like so technologically challenging, and and your mission has always been demystifying the energy industry to try to present a more clear picture to people so that the public can really understand it and be educated and be aware of those really just better options. So, so what is really the roadblock here per se? So, so it is because for me, I, I don't study energy, but yeah. after having done some of those interviews, it seems to me that uh, there are a group of activists uh, and really educated people who say we're not that far away from a great yeah. energy clean future and there are also people who say ah come on like uh, realistically saying we're, we're still like five decades away from you know getting rid of fossil fuel and and uh and things like that so uh, where is the true obstacle here i think the the obstacle is that from the inception of electricity in this country the utilities that we have built to provide electricity have had multiple functions. We ask them to provide electricity, but we also have turned them into political institutions of power for the local politicians. They create jobs. Um, they they provide power. You know, they provide political power, and we need to disentangle that. Because at this point, they're just uh, many of them are just protecting them themselves and their own interest. And when you're at a period of transition of change, uh, we need to identify the institutions whose interests are to prevent change, because change would uh, weaken their 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 power and the power of their political allies. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in this country. Um, that the TVA was fighting back against this because its political allies in the Senate, U.S. Senate and elsewhere, did not want change. They had a good deal going. They did not want someone else coming in. And per, even if it meant providing less expensive electricity, interfering with the good thing that they had. So it's, it's a good question. I, I feel that we need to have a new conversation about this. And to me, the conversation is very simple. We have an opportunity right now to accelerate the transition to a cleaner energy source um, that has proved its utility, that it's proved its, proved its resourcefulness, uh, and that we should embrace. And that it's hard for me to, to think of particularly good reasons not to accelerate this. And those are through very easily accessible and technologically achievable things, such as building those great power grid lines. We're not talking about some spaceship stuff. Right. Have to save us. Absolutely. If you wanted to build a large high voltage DC power line um, and you have the money, <laughs> you pick up the phone, you call Siemens, you call General Electric, uh, you call about two or three other big companies and they have uh, the materials to do it. They don't have to invent anything new. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the big hurdle right now is that these are big, expensive projects. These are multi-billion dollar projects. 
And in order to finance them, and there is lots of Wall Street money, lots of investment money that wants projects like this, but before, and are ready to, to put money in. But before you're going to do that, you need to have um, a couple things that that Michael Skelly and Cleanline ran into, and those things included um, you need to you need the ability to uh, get signed contracts from buyers, and in this case, Tennessee Valley was just reluctant. They just for for, for a variety of reasons they wouldn't even present um, pre- present the bid to to their board of directors. Uh, you also need to have the land. You need to have a place to build uh, the power line. And in this case, Skelly was able to get, you know, 60, 70 percent. He was on his way, estimated to about 95 percent of the land. You need to have some power of eminent domain for that last five percent, uh, because otherwise this the project just falls apart. And that's why there needs to be some element of federal enthusiasm for this. These are big multi-state projects. And if the federal government is not in favor of these projects, they don't happen. That's one of the big lessons that, that I got from my book. It is not enough for the federal government just sort of say, okay, we're sort of tepidly interested, go off and try it, which is sort of the state of the law right now. That is not enough. If the federal government wants this, they need to get behind this. There needs to be some deputy secretary, assistant secretary in the Department of Energy, whose job it is to rebuild a newer, better grid. And it's not just um, it's not just to add renewables, although that's a big part of it. There is a security element. We're very concerned about whether the grid is hackable. Um, there are age elements. I spent all of last year reporting on the wildfires of California that were started by Pacific Gas and Electric because their long distance transmission line um, they had hooks that they had installed in the 1930s and had never replaced metal hooks that were just, you know, aged, you know, that were falling apart. Um, there are, if, if the United States, maybe this is the simplest way for me to put it. The United States wants to maintain a global economic power. It needs to pay attention and upgrade its grid. Otherwise, you know, look, we built a lot of this grid after World War II. The grid is now 75 years old. It's starting to fall apart. We will have more forest fires. We will have more disruption. The reliability of the grid will be will be challenged. We're very concerned about the the security of the grid and whether uh, through SCADA control systems or through hardware, the grid is vulnerable. Uh, my colleague Rebecca Smith of the Wall Street Journal has written phenomenal stories on that over the last few years. Um, and now we have this opportunity to sort of say, okay, we have this grid that was built to accommodate uh, coal and hydro uh, uh, dams and and uh, some natural gas. Let's now augment this grid to accommodate wind and solar. Let's figure out where the places are that we're going to generate that and how we generate it and bring it all together. It's a project that is an investment in our future, Uh, not just to do the United States part under the Paris Accord, but an investment in our economic future. I I see it as simple as that. So I have a, I suppose, a little bit more philosophical question for you. Uh, you Both the boom and superpower really focus in on those singular individuals. They're so persistent in... uh, uh, perfecting their craft or pursuing this goal, then eventually they help 
shape the transformation of the energy industry. So when we talk about jumping uh, over those hurdles and, and taking us to a better energy future, are we talking about millions of people, a mass movement, or are we talking about a couple people who are uh, just visionaries? Because I guess it goes back to the classical debate in history that some people think history is shaped by millions of individual actions, whereas others believe that history is shaped by a, key, a few key yeah. figures. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on that? I suppose uh, you probably need both. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, I, I, I would be betraying um, my background as a U.S. history major um, who studied <laughs> in a department which was very much of the uh, the, the grassroots, the, the bottom up theory of history. Um, you know, the, the, the best example I remember of this was the question of, you know, the, the emancipation of the slaves um, during the Civil War. Well, was it because the great man of history, Abraham Lincoln signed the paper? Well, yeah, sure. Or was it because as uh, the Union forces moved through the South, uh, newly emancipated slaves are emancipated because, you know, the, the, the plantations they were on had been destroyed, were following the Union Army and forcing the issue and forcing um, some change to be made. Well, yes, also. So my answer, Tiger, is that it really takes both. It takes the Michael Skellies who have the vision, the Auburn McClendons who have the vision to sort of say, hey, this is where we need to go. But I also said the government needs to do this. Government's not going to respond unless there's pressure, unless there are people saying, hey, look, we want cleaner electricity. We want you to make it happen. We're not sure how it's going to happen, but we want you to find the ways. It takes really things happen in the United States when the government and the market uh, and individuals are all pushing in the same direction. And, and that's that's the lesson of fracking in the boom. The government made this decision sort of saying, we are going to create a set of rules that govern fracking, and we're not going to change them. These are the rules you operate under. Uh, the market poured lots of money into it, and then you had individuals like Auburn McClendon who had the vision just to push, push, push. Uh, all three of those came together, and the United States massively changed its energy future. We have the same opportunity right now. It's happening more slowly with renewable energy because politics have gotten involved and because the government has yet to sort of set this ground rule, uh, have, has yet to sort of say, okay, here are the rules. Here's how you build transmission. Here's, you know, we're going to get involved. We're going to give you authority. You know, if you can prove that there's a the desire, you know, that there's demand and that there's supply, uh, we will make sure that you get the corridor to build it under these conditions. We don't have all of that together. The market is there. The money is there. There are individuals who are pushing this. It's not just Skelly. Believe it or not, it's people like Philip Anschutz out in Denver, a billionaire who uh, owns a lot of the sports teams out there and a lot of other things. He's building one of these lines or trying to. Um, there are a lot of people who have the vision to push this forward. What we are lacking right now is the federal Congress to get behind this and say, this is something that we support and we're going to make it possible for investment to be made. So to, to give it even a more fine-tuned answer, I think it really requires at this point multiple different people buying into this vision. And in order for the government to get there, uh, I think there needs to be some sort of uprising or, 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 or upswell among voters saying this is important to us. We are voting on these issues. The, the, what you're doing about 
carbon and greenhouse gases are just defining issue. If that happens, and I think there's evidence it is happening. If that happens, uh, then I think you'll have Congress responding to it. So uh, to follow up with another philosophical question, uh, there's a lot of movement on the left thinking about a rearrangement of capitalism uh, to tackle these issues mm -hmm. of climate change. Like the Green New Deal obviously had some parts about energy, but it was mainly kind of a manifesto about the way societies run or whatnot. So right. your, your books really focus on individuals who had a strong ideological belief, but they also had huge financial incentives and they both got very wealthy in, in the process of, yep. of transforming the energy industry. So how much can we rely on the traditional financial incentives to push this ongoing transition? And can capitalism truly tackle an issue of the magnitude of, of climate change? Uh, well, Owen, you know, I think my time's up. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's my question. Uh, that's, that's, that is, uh, that's the $64 billion question. Um, 64 billion. Uh, at Science. least, maybe more. <laughs> One of the things I've, I've done a lot in the last couple of years is the journals written about the money that's available. And it is, as we talk about building a new energy system, uh, whether that is wind and solar, transmission, um, electrification of the transportation fleet, this is a hugely, hugely expensive undertaking. Um I think the fastest way to get there is by tapping private markets, by tapping Wall Street, by tapping investment, by tapping pension pools. Uh, the money is out there to make this happen. I am of the belief that there is a way to harness capitalism um, in this direction. There are a lot of people who disagree with me, and I am I might be wrong, uh, but that's that is what I've seen. I think that within the constructs of capitalism, there is the answer here. I think that to tear down capitalism and try to rebuild some new system would result in so much delays and so much pain that we would not get around to tackling this. Uh, and by this, I mean climate change. I think we have to create mechanisms. We have to create ways to incentivize investment. Um, because that's, you know, look back at, the, at fracking. How did we end up spending billions, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to turn the United States from an importer of natural gas to an exporter, to turn the United States from uh, a country that was very largely dependent on oil imports to one that now exports oil sometimes? Um, we did that through the capital markets. And if the lesson I take from that is that change can happen much more quickly than you think when government and capital markets are pulling in the same direction. And, you know, I'm not sure if there are parts of the Green New Deal that make sense to me, the job creation plan, the way of thinking about it as, as a way to create jobs and, and sort of tie in some of the social issues with, with uh, energy transition. Uh, but I think it is a mistake to abandon, um, to abandon the, the, the giant flows of money that are going to be needed to do this. The only reason that we're now seeing massive deployment of solar um, 
around the world, not just the United States, Mexico, India, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The only reason is that there's been an enormous investment in the supply chain to build solar panels and to drive down the price of solar panels and transformers and all the other um, modules that you need to do that, the cells. Uh, that took massive investment and we are all reaping the benefit of it. It took massive investment, but that investment was made because you had early adopters like Germany uh, in particular that threw money at this uh, through government feed-in tariffs, created incentive structures. Uh, we, we have, you know, you, you ask a really important question. Uh, can you use capitalism to, for this transition or is capitalism going to get in the way of this transition and ultimately uh, won't allow it? And I guess my answer is, if you look at the history of solar, you have your answer right there. We are making strides, not as quickly as people want, but we are certainly making strides in the development of a new energy source on a global scale through capitalism um, supported by government incentives. That seems to me to be the quickest, uh, most sensible way to approach this. But you know, check back, check back in 20 years and we'll figure out if I was right. So I love um, asking my mentors this and some of the people that we've had on the show about these big energy and climate change issues. So what are things that we can be doing as students uh, to help move this along? Like what are what are some things that you identify that we can participate in and places where we can make a difference? Okay, that's a good question. Um... I mean, as students, one of the first things you can do is um, look at your own institutions and ask two questions. Where do you get the electricity? How are you using energy right now? Um, do you have a, a power plant at Princeton that provides electricity? Um, and also, you know, how, it, you know, Princeton is very connected to the global uh, capitalist system through its uh, through its endowment. How is that money being used? Is there a way to harness that money uh, in an effective manner, um, or is the purpose of endowment just to generate money and and you know you sort of take your hands off? So I would start by just asking those questions, um, just looking at that at that issue. When I was at um, Penn State a couple of years ago, they had just finished tearing down a a coal plant on campus. Uh, that had uh, that had provided heat um, and, and I believe power, but I think steam heat and power for the campus for years. And they replaced it with natural gas. Um, this is happening in many, many different places. Start small, get inspired, and then uh, you know once you figured out how how it works on a campus, then you know next thing you can do is tackle the United States. <laughs> you know, I, I actually don't know too much about the power grid in Princeton, but I have asked uh, questions about our endowment. You, you, I interviewed uh, uh, the chief investment officer of Princeton's endowment uh, just a couple months ago and asked him about uh, there's so much concern regarding uh, divesting from the fossil fuel industry. And yeah. I asked him the question. He said, and I think he gave a pretty convincing and reasonable answer. And he said, it's just hard to divest from it because, first of all, they, they the, the purpose of the endowment, the primary goal should be to generate returns and not to make political statements. And also, fossil fuel industry, it's not like all bad. It's not like right. it, we're, we're all getting rid of it in two to three years. Uh, and and I think there's so much 
cynicism, I suppose, within the investment world today. Uh, Matt Levine from Bloomberg Opinion has constantly written about how ESG stocks are graded on a curve and how uh, investors create those ESG funds that simply have, you know, one or two uh, ESG least right. bad companies in it. But in fact, in order for them to generate the same returns, they still have to buy into those companies that sometimes pollute yeah. and make profits. So uh, I suppose my question is twofold. And the fir first of all, is uh, how do you view the whole investment thesis about divestment, uh, issues like that? And also the second part is, uh, how do you not become cynical when it comes to those things? When, yeah. when you look at finance, uh, because I was pretty surprised to, for, to, to hear from you that uh, you would really uh, want to rely on the Wall Street to, to push this transformation. <laughs> um, all right. Well, even though the paper's name is Wall Street Journal, so I'm not here to, to <laughs> um, <laughs> criticize no, no, Wall Street. No, no, no. It's fine. I mean, our, our motto is, you know, free markets and free people. And, uh, uh, so couple questions there uh, i mean uh, the two questions how do you not become you know cynical but, but their first question was you know what do i think about esg and esg investing essentially and and how to okay well let, let me put it to you this way this is how i think about it i acknowledge that in the race to make a company look green and hit sustainability goals it can do stuff that looks good uh, but doesn't really accomplish anything. And, you know, your metrics are only as good as what they're measuring. And if they're not measuring reasonable things, um, you know, who cares? So uh, a perfect example of this is a lot of uh, high uh, tech companies uh, have been trying to outdo themselves on how green they are. Um, and some of them are just sort of saying, oh, we've got all this wind and solar. Um, but then others are being more realistic and saying, look, we're going to try to tackle the hard question um of how we um you know google microsoft come to mind or how do we actually operate on 24 7. how do we actually make sure all of our electricity is being generated by renewables versus just trying to match up like you know we use 100 megawatt hours so we'll make sure at some point that we buy 100 megawatt hours you know so the first thing you know that i do is look for companies that seem to be taking it more seriously uh and maybe look there and the, the reason I would look for that is because those are companies that are thinking through the hard questions right now. And if they're willing to think through the hard question of how do they accomplish the goal they really want to accomplish on this sort of secondary issue, you know, like Google and Microsoft, they're not energy companies. They're company, you know, this is, you know, they're, they're organizing the web and selling advertising and selling software products. But if they're willing to undertake the hard work of really figuring out how do we match, uh, how do we really operate a data center 24-7 on renewables, not just rely on the grid and not just rely on solar, but how do we bring in batteries and really figure out all? If they're willing to do that, that to me sends a strong signal that there is a corporate culture at work that is willing to dig into the tough questions, um, both of energy and also of its core business, whatever that is. And that gives me faith that that's a company that is worth a long-term investment, that, that I can depend on um, to be around in 10 years and provide me with dividends and to ride the ups and downs of the market and the economy um, over time. How do I, so, so now the second question about cynicism, I, I, I don't have time for cynicism. There's work to be done. You know, there, there's, I was listening to um, 
Christiana Figueres, um, one of the architects of the Paris climate, who just uh, wrote a new book on on um, on these issues. And she was talking about uh, stubborn optimism, I believe was her phrase. You have to be optimistic. You have to be stubborn because to give in to cynicism is to is to admit to defeat. And that's just not what I want to do. This is incredibly hard work. But one of the things that Michael Skelly told me again and again, and one of the things that the people at Clean Line told me again and again was that, yes, it's really impossibly hard work to try to build a 700-mile transmission line from Oklahoma to Tennessee. But you know what? It's rewarding. Maybe it's financially rewarding. It's certainly emotionally rewarding. It certainly gives me a feeling like I'm doing something that matters. Um, and that, to me, is a very good way to think about life and what you want to do with life. If you give in to cynicism, yeah, sure, you can go get a job that has nothing to do with this and just move around a lot of money and maybe, okay, fine. And maybe that will make you happy. I don't know. It doesn't make me happy. You, you need to be optimistic that we can solve this. And the more I understand energy and the more I understand energy transition, I acknowledge that there are huge, huge issues and challenges facing us. But I also see the capacity for the system to change. It doesn't change in a, in a month. It doesn't change in six months. But when you start looking back and saying, wow, 10 years ago, we were using 50% of our electricity came from coal in the United States. We're now down around like 20, 25%. Last year, renewables passed coal as a source of electricity generation in the United States. How did that happen? How did this, this mainstay source for 100 years just suddenly like go down by half? And it's continuing. So you need to take a bigger step back and to look and realize that change is happening. And that change happens because we put our shoulders against the wheel and keep pushing and stay optimistic and stay stubborn and stay persistent. And cynicism is really the enemy of all of that. Look, we're a democracy. The government we have, the economy we have, is what we make of it. That's the great, uh, that's the, the, the great responsibility of living in the United States. We get to make these decisions. We face certain physics, facts of physics. You know, there's certain stuff you can't do. But other than that, we get to make the future we want. And, you know, last time I checked, the United States was still a global leading political and economic power. And I think there's a great responsibility in, in tackling some of the issues at hand. Um, one of the big issues at hand is how do we generate an economy um, that uses tremendous amounts of energy, but does so in a way that does not contribute to the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere uh, that, that makes life um, you know, contributes to extreme weather and makes, you know, changes the, the, the environment around us in a way that, that, that will create misery and, and create other challenges. That's one of the signal challenges we have uh, of this age. And, you know, we have an incredible, you know, as Americans, um, we're in a great position to try to do something about that. And so let's try well, that's a great note to end our interview on. And just before you go, I want to ask you, since the name of our podcast show is Policy Punchline, 
uh, want to ask you at the end, what's the punchline here? You know, for your books, your thoughts on, on any of this stuff, what's the punchline? Uh, the punchline is that uh, energy systems are always changing. You need to ask yourself what you want your energy system to look like in 10 years. Because, you know, it's going to be possible. We can. It will be possible. We can make. It will be we possible. can build it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any any quick last minute thoughts on on uh, the recent oil crash? We didn't ask you. To, we didn't touch on that at all. Is this? The yeah, I know. Um, fossil fuel end game. Is this it? Uh, no, this isn't it. This is this is a bizarre situation we find ourselves in, where, for the first time in history, we all stop moving. You know, for the first time since, since Henry Ford rolled the first Model Ts off his assembly lines, we stopped driving cars. We stopped flying. Um, we sheltered in place. Demand just completely evaporated. Um, it will come back. Uh, it's already come back a, a bunch. Uh, if if we get therapeutics, you know, a way to treat COVID. Um, if not, you know, that will probably come hopefully in the next few months. Then after that, a vaccine to prevent it at all. We will go back to being fossil fuel consumers. We will probably go back to the 100 million barrel a day level that we were at. Um, you know, this is not it, but the carnage and the, the bloodletting that's going to occur from a lot of companies that were not ready for this is going to be pretty extraordinary. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Russell. You're, you're so thoughtful and eloquent. It's just been such a wonderful interview. Thanks so much. My pleasure, guys. Enjoy your senior year. And thanks so much for joining me, Owen. Really appreciate you helping me out, uh, educating me on those books and those matters. Thanks so much. Of course. Love being here. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, a range of uh, podcasting platforms that you may prefer. That was our conversation with Russell Gold. He is a Wall Street Journal investigative reporter and author of two really fascinating books, The Boom and Superpower. It talks about uh, fracking and then Superpower talks about uh, – the renewable energy industry. And it's just such a wonderful read that we really recommend you to go uh, take a look. Anyways, thanks so much for listening today. Hope to see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.